May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So I wonder how many stewardship sermons got preached today in churches that follow the lectionary. I mean, the second part of the gospel reading tonight, particularly a story known commonly as the widow's might, because although in our translation the widow puts in two small coins, in the King James it was two mites, which was a a very, very small coin of little significance that was in circulation at the time that the King James was translated. The widow's might... And for many people, it becomes this opportunity, you know, to talk about uh, stewardship and the value of gifts, regardless of their actual amount. It's common to hear that text, that piece of that text, as praising the widow for her sacrificial giving. I mean, the, the rich come and they put in great gobs of money into the temple treasury, and this widow puts in just two coins. Yet, Jesus says, it's all she has. As the uh, biblical preaching professor at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, a guy named David Lose, says, Now that's faith, Jesus seems to say, inviting us, especially during our fall stewardship campaigns, to do the same. For the preacher who wants to encourage the, the congregation to look at matters of financial gifts and giving, It would seem the story is ideally suited, right? And it creates this sort of level playing field. So you're a student or somebody on fixed income for whom $25 a month is not an insignificant bit of money to offer into the collection basket. Well, that gift will be treated with as much respect as one coming from the biggest financial giver in the congregation. The end. Except, there's more going on in this passage than that. I think it's helpful to to remember that Mark wrote his gospel assuming that it would be read as a whole piece, as a single continuous narrative. I mean, we have these bound books that we call Bibles, which are divided neatly into books, chapters, and verses. And we've become very accustomed as modern people to reading short bits, parables or individual stories or individual verses. But did you know that the Bible was only divided into those neat chapters in the 13th century? And that the verse system only appeared in the mid-16th century during the Reformation and at the time of the invention of the printing press. As was true of all of the New Testament authors, Mark's assumption was that long sections of his book would be read aloud to a gathered community. In fact, because Mark's gospel is so comparatively short and fast-paced, it just keeps moving from scene to scene to scene to scene, he probably assumed that those early church communities would have heard it read aloud in one continuous sitting. That have got the whole story. So let me back up and position this little section we read tonight in its larger context, in how Mark intended it to be heard, read, and heard. The Jesus movement begins in Galilee, 
up in the North Country with kind of unsophisticated people as its key leaders, fishermen, for instance. And it's only at the beginning of chapter 11, more than halfway through Mark's telling, that Jesus and his followers finally arrive at the city of Jerusalem. There is the story of his entry into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey as his followers sing Hosanna and wave branches, followed pretty much immediately by the story of the cleansing of the temple. And then, for a chapter and a half, Jesus is shown teaching in the temple precincts. Our reading today actually caps off a series of scenes set at the temple, which included all of those debates that he has with the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And all the way through that section of a chapter and a half, pretty much, Jesus is shown as a force to be reckoned with. He's tough. He's challenging. He's outspoken. He's unafraid of telling the truth about what he sees going on there in the temple. And so in the beginning of this section, after the entry, he chases the money changers and their animals out of the temple, saying, you've turned the house of prayer for all nations into a den of thieves. Not easy language to hear if you happen to be one of the merchants making your living selling the doves or changing the money. And now, in the first section of tonight's reading, he told his audience to beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace, to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Watch out for those theologians, those religious legal experts, those scripture scholars. Their striving for honor and perks of office has become hollow and corrupt. And there's more. He says, they devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. And for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. Theirs is the greater condemnation. The New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado notes that the reference to the scribe robbing a widow of her home probably had to do with the scribe sponging off devout people who felt an obligation to support a scribe as a representative of God's law. And then Hurtado continues, and you already get a sense of what he's thinking when he says scribes sponging off of vulnerable people. Then he adds, both then and now there are examples of Jewish and Christian leaders who unscrupulously solicit support from simple, vulnerable people who are led to believe that they are supporting the very work of God, but can ill afford to give as heavily as they are solicited to do. Well, it's in this context of having engaged in a series of temple-based teachings, of having engaged in a series of debates in the temple, and of having just spoken of the scripture scholars, the, the theologians, as being unscrupulous, that Mark tells us Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Now, according to the Mishnah, 
Set against the wall in the temple's court of women, the court of women is is one of the areas open to men and women and children, so it's a very public place. Set against the wall in that court were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for receiving monetary offerings. Our offerings, particularly here in, in, at St. Ben's, come in the form of checks or cash placed in discreet envelopes and quietly placed in baskets on the back table. In some churches, it's even more discreet than that. You can do automatic withdrawal. No one has a clue as to the amount of the donation going into any one of those envelopes. Those very public trumpet-shaped receptacles in the court of women would have been a very different matter. If you timed it right, a good number of people could see just how generous you were. Here you come as one of the benevolent ones with a great bag of coins, which you can drop into that big receptacle. And again, time it right, and all the neighbors can see your generosity. And for the widow and her two little coins, clink, clink, everyone would know the meagerness of her gift. Now, as David Loos, the scholar from Luther Seminary, notes, this scene is part of a much larger critique Jesus levels at the temple and at its practices more generally. Given that we are in the middle of Jesus' complaints about the temple, Loos continues, I wonder if his emotional affect with regard to the widow is less a matter of praise than it is lament. I wonder, that is, if Jesus says what he says not so much to praise the widow, but to indict those who would accept all that she has. Is she one of those widows the scribes are devouring? Now, I know that's hardly the customary reading of the text, but it's interesting to see what follows from there. Immediately after this scene where Jesus recognizes the widow giving her all, they leave the temple. And it says, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. And Jesus asked the disciple, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Will you look at this place, says the small-town disciple from the North Country, with a kind of a naivete, as if he's missed everything Jesus has just said and done to critique the system that had pretty much run its course. It will all be thrown down, Jesus says. That way of being the people of God has become hollow. Its principal proponents corrupt and self-serving. Its sacrificial system, little more than a set of business deals that get in the way of actual prayer. And lamentably, perhaps, in support of it all, 
that widow has just given away her last two coins, all she had to live on. Not that Jesus questions the authenticity of her gift, but it may be that his words are at once a recognition of her sacrificial giving, a lament over her impoverishment, and an indictment of the system that has landed her there. In our cultural context, we tend not to like to talk too personally about money. We see that as being a bit uncouth, maybe in bad taste to talk too much about our own finances. Jesus, though, was not ashamed to talk about money. Neither was Paul in his various letters to those young church communities. Paul was forever challenging his communities to contribute to the needs of the struggling church based in Jerusalem. And in 1 Timothy, there's issued a challenge that, quote, those who in the present age are rich be commanded not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, he continues, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to serve, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. What he's saying is to those in those communities who are very wealthy, they need to learn how to hold that with open hands not as a sign of their prestige and privilege, as had become the case in the temple precincts, not as a sign of honor or of power or of glory, but to hold it lightly and with generosity, and to understand that the only gifts that really matter are the ones that have been given us in the first place. Well, perhaps this is a stewardship sermon after all, not in the sense of saying something so basic as, Every gift, no matter how small, is to be honored, however true that may be. I mean, life in a church community does depend on the support and stewardship of the whole community. But that's not what this is about tonight. Rather, this is about stewardship in the sense of inviting all of us to take a look at what we have to give, but also to dare to look critically and self-critically at the things in our own time that devour the widows' houses. And to say by word and action that we, as the people of God, beg to differ. And we're invited to beg to differ, to see money differently, to see social structures differently, to see matters of equality and equity differently. And we're invited to do it not as a matter of narrow religious obligation, but rather to echo those words from 1 Timothy, so that we may take hold of life that really is life. After all, whether rich or poor or somewhere in between, the life that really is life is the one gift we all most need to receive, the one gift really worth treasuring, and it is the only one for which it is worth our giving all. Amen.